Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We're in a verse-by-verse study on Sunday mornings of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as I said earlier for our scripture reading, the Apostle Paul, throughout the entirety of his Christian life and ministry, was utterly consumed with the gospel of Christ. Do you remember what he told the Philippians in describing his prayers to God for them? Look back at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul fought in a gospel-centric way to the degree that everything was refracted through the lens of gospel work. Every bit of it. That's all he thought about. He was consumed by the idea of seeing men and women around him come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was utterly consumed with that truth. Look at verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why, Paul? For you are all partakers with me of grace, the grace of the gospel. So whether you're talking about gospel preaching, gospel teaching, or you're talking about gospel grace in gospel living, gospel partnership, Paul was consumed with the gospel. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says, later on in chapter 1, in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think there's a mistaken notion among many who attend local churches, that when they hear the gospel first in their lives, chronologically speaking, they respond to it, they hear it, if in fact they do respond the first time. And when they embrace the gospel, so many of them, I think, mistakenly conclude, well, that's it as far as the gospel is concerned. I'm now saved. I'm now delivered from my sins. I'm on my way to heaven. And now I've got to get on with sanctification, with holiness of life. And that part is true enough as it is, but you never tire of hearing the gospel message being preached. And that was Paul. He never tired of that. It was always about him. It was always in him. It was always through him. It was always around him. And he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
And I take from that that Paul is talking about the idea of not just embracing the gospel as you first became a Christian, but also that you're living side by side with other gospelers, others who are communicating the gospel just like you are, and that you're striving to stand firm in the Spirit with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're doing so with one mind, and you're striving in that side-by-side fashion for the faith of the gospel. And I take that phrase to mean that they are continuing to not only embrace the gospel themselves, but to communicate that gospel to others so that others would embrace the faith of the gospel. That's what we're all about. That's what we should be all about. Look at Philippians chapter 2 and what Paul says in verse 14. This is what he tells the Philippians, not only as they've initially embraced the gospel, but as they live the gospel out in their lives, do all things, Philippians 2.14, without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. My friends, that can mean nothing other than standing in gospel light as a Christian so that you may be emitting light as a Christian. You're not only saying, been there, done that, but I have an ongoing relationship with the gospel. It's not only the gospel that I first received, but it's an ongoing relationship with the gospel in such a way that I'm growing in the light of gospel facts, I'm growing in the light of gospel grace, and as I grow in my maturity, in my sanctification, in my holiness, I am growing not only in my understanding of all the riches of God's grace in the gospel, all the implications of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, but I also want to appear as a shining light, so much so that my shining light of gospel truth, along with my comrades, is allowing our light to so shine that it shines in a crooked and twisted generation that's very, very dark. Paul was all about the gospel. Notice what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything. This is his personal testimony. This is his drive. These are his determinations. This is his passion. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yes, it starts the day you first believe. And the gospel never grows old. Never grows old. It enlivens you. It deepens your understanding of gospel truth as you live in that gospel truth, as you communicate that gospel truth, and as you seek to know Jesus Christ in an ever-awakening fashion. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not just knowing that He's my Savior, not just knowing that that He is the one who died for me, not only as I look in my past receiving of Him, but also as I continue to work on knowing the One who has saved me from my sins. 
For His sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You say, well, I thought you already had Christ, Paul. Yes, but I'm gaining Him in a new way, in ever-increasing ways of knowledge and intimacy and understanding so that I'm gaining Christ every day, learning more about Him and being found in Him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what I used to do, he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the Christ I want to know. This is the Christ who who loves me, who gave himself for me, and for whom I want others to know as well. He says further in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 18, For many of whom I've told you, often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Anytime Paul saw someone misrepresenting the teaching about the cross of Jesus Christ, those are fighting words to him. No wonder he talks about both the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I I want to be able to defend Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross to the naysayers who question whether or not there really is a God, who question whether or not there really is a Jesus Christ, who question whether or not He really did rise from the dead, who question whether or not He is the Savior and Lord presented by God the Father to all humanity. And the confirmation that the gospel we preach, Paul says, is indeed the only gospel. That there really aren't any other Gospels. But if there are, as he says in Galatians 1, then we need to say to those who are propagating such a false Gospel that it isn't true and that they are going to be consigned to hell and judgment forever because they're preaching the wrong Gospel. I mean, for Paul, this is his life and his death. This is his opportunity and this is his defense. So you and I, if we're going to be like our Savior, and if we're going to be like one of His apostles, the Apostle Paul himself, we ought to be those who not only embrace the gospel at the entry point of our Christian life, but throughout our Christian life. Even to the end when Paul himself says, our citizenship, verse 20 of chapter 3, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Folks, this is a package deal. 
It's the gospel you first believed. It's the God in whom you first trusted. It's the Christ whose cross bore your sins and mine on that tree. And it's the glorious awaiting of the future day when our bodies will be transformed to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Christ even to be the one to subject all things to Himself. This is the gospel. It's what we live for. It's why we're here. It's why we gather. It's also why we scatter to tell everybody how we've been equipped to understand and preach and teach and model this gospel. That's the pervasive goal of Paul's existence, to preach Christ by making Him truly and clearly known to those around Him. And so I ask the question, is that our life? Is that our goal? Is that our pervasive ministry exploit to make Christ known to all those around us? I mean, Paul was so committed to the message of Christ being preached that he saw God's providential hand behind two very incredible realities, very interesting and provocative realities, which I'm sure would seem to be for so many of us, if not all of us, very countercultural and counterintuitive to every heart and mind, including my own. You say, what in the world are you talking about? What realities? What countercultural, counterintuitive spiritual realities might you be referring to if Paul was so committed, so focused, so centrally located in his heart and mind about the gospel that he would see God's providential hand in everything that was going his way, in everything that happened to him? What, what might that be? Well, this is exactly what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And I'm going to give you these two realities, and I want you to see them in bold relief, and I'm going to give you these two outline points that you and I can see, in a way, through the lens of the life of Paul, how everything we do has God's providential hand in and through it all, So that no matter what happens to us in our life, God's providence is working His work so that you and I can be those persons of gospel grace so that nothing that happens is seen outside of God's providential control and it's for the purpose and extent of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it is. Here's the first one. Now I know it's going to seem to you, this first reality, countercultural, counterintuitive, But if you were the Apostle Paul and you were teaching these Philippians and this is what he did, this is what you would do too if you believe and see the world like he does. Number one, God's providential work in and through our life's circumstances. I'll say it again. God's providential work in and through our own life's circumstances. This is what Paul shows us here in verses 12, 13, and 14. Listen to Philippians 1, 12, 13, and 14. Paul's just prayed. Remember this this phenomenal prayer that he's prayed? He's prayed from verses 3 to 11. And now he gets into the very meat of what he's attempting to show them about not only his life, but about what they need to do in their lives. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers... 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now this is, this is so countercultural. it's so counterintuitive. Here's what's happening. Verse 12 and 13. Paul says, I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, with whom I'm in partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I want you to know that even though I'm in these chains, even though I'm imprisoned here in Rome, and I'm sending this letter to be read among you, I don't want you to be discouraged about me. I don't want you to grope in the darkness of what is God doing putting Paul on the shelf of ministry. God, what are you doing? What's happening? Why why are you treating this good and godly man who wants to communicate the gospel of God's grace to everyone around him? Why do you have him in bondage? You've got him in chains. You've got him sitting, lying in a filthy dungeon in a Roman prison where he could be otherwise out and about with free course to be able to communicate the gospel to everyone in greater numbers. I mean, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's the idea of, God, if, if you're really in charge and if you're really wise and if you're providentially doing the things that you ought to be doing, you ought to loose this guy because he's one of our best. Sometimes I even hear people say, boy, if so-and-so could get saved, man, then the kingdom would explode exponentially because that guy is so articulate. And if he were on our side, then man, we'd have massive numbers of people coming to Christ and then the end would come. Really? As though God doesn't know what he's doing? As though he doesn't have providential control of the universe, let alone the fact that God himself is the one behind it all in the propagation of the gospel? So maybe some of these Philippians are needing encouragement from Paul. Maybe some of them are presuming that Paul's been put on the shelf Maybe not for sinister reasons, maybe not for sin, but maybe it's happening and they don't understand and they need encouragement and they need to know from Paul himself, like he tells them here, brothers, this is actually coming about for the greater advance of the gospel. What? Prison? Chains? Dust? Little critters? Walking all around my body? No, it can't can't be that. This is what I call freedom out of bondage for sinners. Freedom out of bondage for sinners. What sinners? What sinners? The Roman guards. The Roman guards. God wants some of these Roman guards to be delivered from their sin. 
And so what does he do? He takes the Apostle Paul and he chains them to the guards so they can't get away. It's brilliant. (laughs) You know, there are even some who believed that the exchange of guards happened about every half hour or so. And so there was a new victim for Paul to talk with. <laughs> and this is incredible. I mean, the first sort of countercultural element in Paul's words has to do with the fact that contrary to what virtually everyone, you and I would know, including ourselves, we would certainly not want to be in prison for any reason, right? Held against our will and unable to freely move about because we assume that the idea of freedom with regard to gospel preaching and teaching is all about being free to go about wherever we want to be able to talk to whomever we want. But God providentially uses circumstances just like this to actually put us right in the place of those to whom he's choosing to hear such a gospel. And he's in control of it all. Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is not hyperbole. This This is not Paul embellishing the truth a little bit so as to make it palliative for for these uh, hurting disciples. No, this is the plan of God, and it's the best plan. And Paul is saying with absolute truth and with total sincerity that what has happened to me in my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. It's not as though Paul sought to be imprisoned so that the gospel could advance. That's not what he's doing. Hey, send me there. But in his obedience to the providence of God, whatever God is choosing to to use in space and time for all of us, including Paul, we receive. We accept. That doesn't mean we always understand it. But we receive it as from his hand so that you and I could be in a position, in a place, in a time, in a context in which the person sitting, standing, being next to you, we likely believe is a person who needs such a gospel. Especially if you're chained to such a one. Right? This is, this is what he's doing. He's simply communicating to the Philippians that given the fact that he's now imprisoned in Rome and because of their partnership from the gospel from the first day until now, and furthermore, because Paul is asserting that God is sovereign over all things, which includes his providential governance over all the circumstances of Paul's life, even behind bars, the Lord has carefully orchestrated that the gospel is advancing among the Roman soldiers. Praise God. Verse 13, it's clear. So that for the purpose that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, what has become known? The gospel. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Man, I wish I had this kind of spiritual maturity in a lot, if not most of the situations that I come across. That, that kind of sensitivity that says, Lord, I think this may be a gospel opportunity. And, and, and it's really strange that I'm here. I don't get it. 
I don't understand it, but you've got me here for a reason, for a purpose, and so I need to be obedient to you, and I believe it will further advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm in this dungeon, I'm in this prison, I'm in Rome, I'd really want to be with the Philippians to encourage them, to continue teaching them and instructing them, but in your providence, you want them to be encouraged and taught by others, including me not being there in person, but sending a letter, and I'm going to send it through Epaphroditus, and he's going to encourage them at the very same time that I'm going to be teaching the gospel to these to whom I'm chained. You see the mind of God? Incredible. Wise. All-knowing. All-pervasive sovereignty. We don't have to kick against it. It doesn't mean we always understand it. But we all can say, you've got me in the family I'm in. You've got me in the job that I have. You've got me in the school I attend. You've got me in the relationships that I partake in. You've got me in all and every situation because of the opportunity to be a light shining in a dark place. Because the gospel is of first importance. And that, that's Paul. Here's the implication. Here's an application question. Are you seeing in your own circumstances in life and advance in the providence of God for any communication you have to others. I'll say it again. Are you seeing in your own circumstances, in your life, and advance in gospel communication to others? Now, I know it's hard. I know it's sometimes when, you, when you're in that situation and when you're, when you're about ready to speak because you, 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 you are under the most severe impression, shall we say, that God has me here so that I could speak a word about Christ to the person before me. It could be someone you've known for a long time. It could be someone you've never met. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know the first thing that you say might be returned with scorn, right? You might have someone say, oh, you don't believe in all of that religious stuff, do you? I mean, you don't, you don't really believe there's a God, do you? And you certainly don't believe that one man, this, this supposed Messiah, Savior, Jesus, is the answer to all the world's ills, do you? In, in fact, if, if that were true, then why is there so much evil in the world? And why is it so pervasive? And then you and I are like those who want to say something like this. Check, please. Check. Check. <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer. I, boy, if they, if they ask me something that I'm not sure of, what do I say? And I don't want to misrepresent Christ, and, and I, I don't want to be in a conversation with someone in which uh, there's a verbal war of wits going on and I'm terribly unarmed. I mean, come on. I want to be able to, to have an answer. Well, this is why we're here. We're here to be equipped. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we have men's groups and women's groups, and that's why we have, why we have children's ministry, and that's why we have small groups, and we, we come here... This is our philosophy of ministry, folks. We come here for the gathering of the saints to be equipped so that we could scatter for evangelization. We gather for edification and we scatter for evangelization. That's what we do. That's why we don't tailor this service to unbelievers. Now, we're thankful, we're thrilled that if you're an unbeliever, you're here. We're thrilled at this. But this message, it's not for you in the first of important senses. This is for the equipping of 
those who are already believers in Jesus Christ so that they can turn around and speak to you. And maybe they've brought you today. And maybe I've greased the slide for an opportunity for you to have a conversation with them, the person that's brought you. Maybe you've got someone in your mind at your place of business. Maybe in your family. You've talked to them already. You say, boy, I just, I, I need some more equipping. I need some more training. I need some more help. Or, you know, I don't think it's that hard with that particular person. But I know I find it difficult to say something like this. Do you think it's time for you to repent of your sins and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and, and Lord? Do you know it may be that someone says, I've been waiting for you to ask me that. My sister-in-law, Amy Walsh, who's been with us over the last couple of weeks, said that she had a recent experience in which she was meeting with a lady who she had known to a smaller degree, but to whom she went through a gospel opportunity with her and said to her, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord right now? And she didn't do it in a quick fashion. They talked for a couple of hours and she went through many aspects of Christianity and what it means to walk in the Christian life and what it means to be a child of God. And the person said, yes, I think I'd like to do that right now. And she was so encouraged. And that may or may not be the case with you, but the, the question still remains, are you seeing in your circumstances, in your life, an advance in gospel communication to others. And of course, the first thing you must ask yourself, and so do I, is whether or not you're even thinking about your circumstances in relationship to the gospel, right? I mean, people just live their lives. I mean, they just go to work and they come home and they've got their families and they talk to their wife or husband and they try to rear their children and they've got that job and you've got pressure at work and you've got issues at school or home or work or whatever it may be. And sometimes we're not always geared, keen toward the idea of having in a strategy of mind a keen conversation with someone about the gospel because our lives are busy. But yes, are they busy with the things of first importance? Why do we do counseling training? Because we want people to help other people so that when they're equipped, they can speak a word of the gospel to others. They can help other people learn how to become a Christian and how to live the Christian life. I mean, this is, this is true for me. It's true for all of us. I mean, God is providentially building His kingdom, advancing the gospel. Everything in your life and mind is being built around that end, the propagation of the gospel, the building of the kingdom. That's why we're here. I mean, do you see in your life, all of your life's twists and turns, all of its ebbs and flows as God is providentially orchestrating the gospel's advance in your life. Do you see that? This is why we're here. This is why we breathe. This is why we've been graciously granted oxygen. So that we are able to speak to others about the gospel. Are you speaking to anyone currently about Jesus? Anybody? See, right there. Someone needs to know Christ. They're calling in. I planted that. Thank you for perfect timing. 
I mean, if, if you are, if you've got somebody that you're talking to and you're, you're talking to them through troubled circumstances, either theirs or yours or both, it's an opportunity to talk to them about Christ, right? And you know, and I've had it a thousand times and so have you, we've had the opportunities. We've had the opportunities. They've been right there in front of us and we didn't take it. And you know how guilt-ridden we are when that happens? Oh, Lord, I'm not sure I was faithful to you right then and right there. Lord, give me number, another opportunity. This is, this is Paul. I mean, I can't imagine. Here's a guy who should have, would have, could have been thinking only about himself, right? I'm in chains. It's really cold in here. I really, can, can I have like, like that 30 minutes of exercise that you guys talk about? And uh, does anybody have a towel? And oh, by the way, I've got some parchments. If you, if, you, if you would be so kind to bring me the parchments so that I could read my Bible. And don't you hear all of us screaming? Read your Bible for what purpose? For what end? For what goal? Well, if the gospel is of first importance, I need to read the parchments and I need to know and understand the true gospel so that I can communicate the true gospel. That's why we call it freedom out of his bondage for sinners. Sinners to whom he's chained. Now that's a captive audience. That's an opportunity for us, for sinners, to evangelize sinners. And you know that's not all that there is. I mean, I know it sounds counterintuitive. Paul is countercultural. I mean... I need to be on reform so that the recidivism rate for prisoners is less and less. So I think what I'm going to do is when I get out of here, I'm going to lobby the authorities to make sure that, that these dungeons are more well-kept and well-lit. I'm going to champion the idea that televisions ought to be put in here so that these men and women could idly bide their time by at least getting some level of education through a television. Maybe a, a reading plan, a reading program. You know, we can, get, we can get so concerned about things that are not of central importance. So Paul isn't doing that, and it's countercultural, it's counterintuitive, but he's saying, I'm actually seeing the chains around my wrists and the change of the guard in such a fashion that they can't leave me and praise God I can't leave them. And you know what he says? The whole imperial guard wants to say hi to you guys. <laughs> Which I assume probably also means that they're coming to Christ. They're coming to Christ. That's, that's what I call freedom out of bondage for sinners. Here's another Here's another, look at verse 14. I want to call this boldness out of weakness for saints. Boldness out of Paul's own weakness for saints. Now we've all already talked about sinners, we've talked about evangelism, but notice this. This is verse 14. This is incredible. And he says, most of the brothers, most of those who Paul knows, his associates those who are in his band of gospelers, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord 
by my imprisonment are what? Much more bold to speak the word without fear. And now Paul switches and says, hey, there's a double-edged reality sword here. And it's the idea that for some of these sinners who are chained to me, I have gospel opportunity. And when others hear about my imprisonment and that I'm being in this prison for probably maybe two to three years, and we don't know how long he's been in, but it may be that the timing works out to where it was a two or three year sentence before he's being let out. And he says, and the rumor has it, that there are even other brothers to whom I'm writing and who are writing me that I'm hearing the word that they are being brought great encouragement because they know what I'm doing in here and they know that it's for the sake of the advance of the gospel and because of that, they're even becoming more bold themselves. Wow. I mean, this is boldness out of Paul's weakness. He's in jail but not because he did something wrong. Not because he's manipulating the system. Not because of anything else except God's providential hand at work. Is that that what you see in your life? You see God's providential hand at work uh, when someone comes to to help you with that flat tire. Someone comes and uh, bumps into you in the grocery store and you say, excuse me, maybe that's not a mistake. Maybe not. Maybe someone moves in right next to you. Maybe you want to get to know them. Maybe you want to invite them to a Bible study. Maybe you want to say, hey, we've got a great lady study going on. Would you like to come? Well, I, I, I've never studied the Bible. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you study? Well, we're going through this study on such and such and so and so. I think I'd like to do that. Or... You know, there are so many of us, and I put myself in this camp, who when you have that gospel opportunity and your knees are knocking and you don't quite know what to say and maybe there are objections that they begin to raise and yet you know that if this is an opportunity from the Lord, you look back on the weaknesses of others and you see their circumstances and you see how bold they were And maybe you're saying something like this. Look, if they can do it out of the midst of their grand weakness, I can do this. I can do this. This is is what he's saying. I mean, not only is the idea of his imprisonment countercultural, counterintuitive, we would assume it would be otherwise far better for evangelism to be taking place in a far greater access and with much greater freedom, and yet Paul says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my skill in ministry and my teaching effectiveness and my evangelization of others while incarcerated. In other words, he's going to bloom where he's planted. He's just going to bloom where he's planted. And there are multiplied millions of people in God's program around the world who are also in dire straits. Some of them incarcerated. Remember Joseph? I mean, Joseph is this study in God's providence. In fact, if you read Genesis 37 to 50, that last major section of the book of Genesis, and you started in chapter 37, and you went all the way through to chapter 50, especially chapter 50, verse 20, where he says, what you, my brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good. 
It's a study just right on the top of the page, God's providence. Because that's the theme of Genesis 37 to 50. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. Like the idea that, that he's not going to touch Potiphar's wife, right? She belongs to Potiphar. I'm not supposed to touch her. That's the command he gave me. And yet she wants to try to seduce me. And I've heard people teaching on the subject of the idea of how do you uh, withstand sexual temptation as Joseph did. And those are okay as far as they go. But that's not the point of that passage. The point of that passage is this, the providence of God. You say, providence? You want to call that providence? You want to say that when he ran out of his coat to say no to sexual sin, that it got him where he wanted? He actually was re-imprisoned. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not best. Well, what was God doing in his providence? He was preparing this man Joseph, and he was preparing his brothers, and he was preparing his father, and he was preparing all of those in Egypt itself for the famine that was to come, right? And he was preparing Joseph, even in his spiritual maturity, even as a young man, so that when the time came and he became the interpreter by God, by God's gift of those dreams, and the very king, Pharaoh of Egypt, put him in charge of everything, don't you think Joseph would turn around and say, I see this as God's providence. Now, most of the time, you and I, we can't see it on the front end. We can't see it on the front end. And so we kick against the goads. We don't like it. We don't see it in our mind's eye. If it doesn't work for me, if it doesn't fit, if I don't understand it, I'm out. But for Joseph, everything that he did, the Lord made to prosper. And what he did, the Lord gave him success. And there he goes from the pit to the palace. And Paul's very similar. So much so that he's in this filthy Roman prison and he gets it and he understands it. And yet he says, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. You see that in the text? It's not just happenstance. It's by the very fact of his incarceration that the brothers are being encouraged. You say, oh, that, that's one point in the wind column. That's one point of where I can see God working in his providence. Praise God for that. You may not see it on the front end, but as you trust God and as you work through the processes of the trials and temptations of life, as you look back, you can say, ah, now I see how you were working. And now I saw how sinful I was when I kicked against the goads. I see how I was when I said, I don't like this. I don't want this. This is not best for me. Why do you have me in this situation? And if the gospel is of first importance, you've got me in this situation. And if I trust you with my life, which I should because Jesus Christ, you died for me. So if you'll go to the extent of dying for me, I will go to the extent of trusting you because of your plan and not my own. Right? Here's the implication of verse 14. How would you fill in the blank in verse 14 if it was to have been written about you instead of Paul? Something like this. Most of the Christians around me, having become confident in the Lord by my blank, yeah, for Paul it was imprisonment. What, what is it for years? Most of the Christians around me gained great confidence, gained great boldness because of my blank. 
You fill it in. You know about your situation. By my sickness. By my job. By my family. By my whatever it is. You think of it. You know you. Put yourself in that blank. Most of the Christians around me, having become confident in the Lord by my blank, are much more bold to speak the word to others without fear. I mean, what circumstances are you presently going through with which you give other believers around you a sense that their own boldness and their own confidence in Jesus Christ is increased and that they're better evangelists and better disciples and disciplers in the various challenges of their lives through what they see you going through? Wow, what a question. I mean, now what Paul went through is very applicable to something I'm going through. And so whether it's sinners coming to Christ in Paul's ministry or saints being built up and gaining confidence and boldness to speak the word without fear, Paul seems to be understanding the providence of God in a way that I certainly would like to understand it. And so would you. Okay, God, instead of kicking against this, I want to embrace it. Okay, and I'm actually, frankly, even a little excited. Now, it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. I'm a little excited to see how my incarceration is going to work out here. You say, well, that's probably not going to happen in America. That's true, at least for now. But you know, there are multiplied Christians around the world who are saying, I wonder how my incarceration is going to fit in the providence of God. Might it, me, might it be that I'm going to be with some guards? Might it be that I'm going to be with fellow prisoners? Might it be that I'll be released and I'll be able to have a platform from which I can say, this is how to suffer for Christ? I mean, whatever it is. And then here's the, here's the, the capper to me of this section of Philippians 1. It's not just God's providential hand in all of our life's circumstances. It's God's providential hand, and this is number two, in our life's motives. In our life's motives. Look at verses 15 to 18. So what Paul says. Remember he's just said, some of these brothers are having, become, are, are, are having and becoming more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and they're much more bold to speak the word without fear, and then sort of, again, counterintuitively, counterculturally, right out of the blue, he says this, some indeed, and we believe that he's referring to the brothers here of verse 14, and some of these brothers indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. What? I mean, hey, we were, we were actually cooking with gas here for a while. We were, we were seeing God's providence, and we were coming to grips with this truth that God has His providential hand on my life too, and whatever my life circumstances are. But now Paul's throwing me a curve because he's saying, here's why the gospel is so central to me, that there are actually some of these brothers who are seeking to be even more bold in their preaching Christ but they're doing it with questionable motives. Two of them he lists, envy and rivalry. And he actually even lists two more. He says in verse 17, the former, 
talking about these guys who are involved in envy and rivalry in their preaching of Christ. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then he says in verse 18, they're also doing it in pretense. So you've got pretense, You've got selfish ambition and not sincere, and you've got envy and rivalry. You're saying, wait a minute, that, that, that can't describe Christian preachers, can it? And you know what Paul is saying here? And again, it's so counterintuitive. He says, yes, there are men who look at circumstances like mine, my imprisonment, And maybe they say something like this, I'm preaching the true Christ, but now that Paul's been put on the shelf, I can maybe gain some adulation. Because I'm envious of his ministry. And there's kind of this rivalry going on between Paul and me. And, and, And you'd almost think right at that moment, well then, that guy's not genuine. He's not a true Christian preacher. Because true Christian preachers... We don't do anything bad, do we? I mean, we never have envy, do we? Rivalry? Selfish ambition? Pretense? Say it isn't so. But it is so. There are people in the world, extant in our own day, who are preaching the true Christ, the true gospel. Not fakeries, not false preachers and teachers. They're preaching the true Christ and the true gospel, but they're doing it with some questionable motives. And that's what he says. I mean, God's providential hand even extends in and through our motives. I mean, maybe someone would say, well, I'm not a preacher, so that doesn't apply to me. We'll go back to the idea of gospel presentation. Maybe if I know that this situation is right before me and that I should say something, if I say something to this person and we get into dialogue about Christianity, there's maybe a good chance that they're going to reject me. And I don't like rejection. So I won't say anything. Or maybe they're going to think I'm weird. Or maybe they're going to think that I'm not who I purport to be And so maybe I'll back off. Now that's a motive problem. So here are some of these preachers. They have envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. And they're not sincere. And they're doing it in pretense. But Paul says, but they're actually still preaching the right Christ and the right gospel. What does he say about them? (laughs) He says, they're doing it, and in this I rejoice. I I rejoice? How about I renounce? Paul doesn't know their motives. How can I as a human being look into the human heart of another person and know their motives? The only thing I can know is what they say about the doctrine of Christ and what they do with their lives. And sometimes it won't be until the Bema Seat of Judgment where Christ examines and evaluates the lives of true Christians 
whether gospelers or preachers, and he finds out what their true motives are. I mean, one of the things I prayed for not only this message, but certainly this one and others, is, Lord, don't let me preach the true Christ and the true gospel with bad motives. Don't, don't let me do that. Now, I know if I were doing it in Paul's day, he'd say, in this I rejoice. I, I, I don't want it to be a settled position of the right Christ and the right gospel with less than the right motives. I don't want to settle for that. I want the right Christ and the right gospel and the right motives, not for my own self-aggrandizement, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of His gospel, for the sake of the holiness of the church, for the sake of the building up of the body, for the sake of that right equipping, for the sake of the evangelization of the lost. I want those motives to be my motives. And when they aren't, I want to fight against those things tooth and nail. But there are some, and they don't. They, they are even so out of it, we might say, he says that they're rivalrous and envious of the Apostle Paul when he's right there in the dungeon. And maybe they're saying things like this, I'm glad he's there. Now I can go on the road. But what about the others? Notice what he says in verse 15. But others, other preachers of Christ, from goodwill. And what do they do in their motives? The latter, these guys, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's the right preachers preaching the right message with the right gospel, with the right motives. And they're not saying, I'm so glad he's incarcerated so that now I can be the Paul of our day. No, they're saying, you know, Paul's convinced me that even though he's incarcerated, it's advancing the gospel. And that's great to me. And I want to be a part of this, this band of brothers who are pulling together for the defense of the gospel. Not those who are preaching out of selfish ambition, thinking that in doing so they'll afflict Paul in his imprisonment. No, what it says in verse 18, these good guys are preaching in truth. You say, good guys, Christians who are always and forever checking their motives. The others are Christians. There's nothing about this text that suggests that Paul is referring to non-Christian sham preachers. But he is saying, the Lord will determine the motives of the human heart and that Paul himself isn't because he's a human being just like you and me. And he's going to wait until the day, until the day when it's revealed. You know, I have enough trouble figuring out my own motives than figuring out somebody else's motives. Amen. Whether it's the living of their Christian life, whether it's the preaching of the gospel, whether it's gospel evangelism, whatever it is, I've got all the time and opportunity to try to check out one guy, and that's yours truly. And I think sometimes we get sidetracked and derailed in our Christian lives because we're spending a whole lot of time trying to figure out the motives of others. Amen. Why did she say that? Why did he do that? What's their motive? Honey, could you sit down and talk to me about this? Because this is troubling me. I, I don't know why she's, she's, she's doing that to me. I don't know why she's treating me this way. 
Do you think it was something I did? Do you think it was something I said? You know, because if not, then that just shows I don't like her. Or some guy who's involved in envy and rivalry and selfish ambition because they see somebody else rise and they see themselves as not rising to the same level. And so out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and through pretense, they say, oh, you know, Paul, I mean, he's okay. He's an okay preacher. But why is he in prison? I mean, do you think there's something else there? I mean, even the Corinthians got involved in that. They even questioned Paul's motives. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5, he says, look, guys, I know you're thinking that I'm doing this with the wrong motives, but I do not even judge myself because the one who examines me is the Lord. And when that day comes, when he reveals the hidden things of the darkness and the motives of men's hearts, he says this, then each man's praise will come to him from God. You know all those motives that I thought were totally askew? And then when the Bema seat came and when the motives were evaluated, I thought it was sure that the Lord would be saying about this guy I'm not too sure about, and he's going to get it. And his motives are going to be found out that he wasn't doing that with right motives. And Paul says, and I think you're going to find out that each man's praise will come to him from God. So I don't worry about that. I got my own life to figure out. That's what Paul's saying here. He's talking about preaching Christ either from these impure motives, but it's a preaching of Christ, and it's preaching Christ from pure motives, and it's a preaching Christ plus their pure motives, and that's okay. You say, wait a minute, I got a problem with that, because Peter... Is not doing what Paul did here. Peter, in Acts chapter 8, looked at that Simon Magus, you know, the magician, the one who saw the power going on, the power of the Holy Spirit, who was a magician himself and had black magic power. And when he saw the Holy Spirit, it says he believed there in Acts 8. It says he believed in the text. And it says when he saw this power, he came to the apostles and said, and I want this power. Give me this power. And Peter just rebuked him. You say, was, was Peter wrong to assess his motives? Two things. Number one, in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, Peter confronted them because the Holy Spirit revealed to him the motives of the human heart and that they weren't giving the money that they said they'd given. So there's a, there's a big difference between an apostle for whom God reveals something and you and me. I don't have that that opportunity. I can't see inside people's hearts. I don't have x-ray vision at all. I don't even know what you're thinking right now other than this is a fantastic sermon. But other than that, (laughs) other than that, I don't know what you're thinking. But I will tell you this. Paul is choosing as an act of his will to say about guys who everyone might presume has questionable motives in their preaching ministry I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I rejoice. Now, he's not talking about somebody who's a false teacher. He's going to talk about them. He's going to talk about them in chapter 3 in two places, at the beginning and at the end of chapter 3. And he's going to say, these are dogs. (laughs) They're, They're false brethren. How does he know that? 
Because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him? No, 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 no. Because of what they taught. You see? What they taught. And how they lived their lives. You read 2 Peter chapter 2, and you find out that these false teachers are marked by two things. False doctrine and false lives. And if it comes to what we see somebody doing, and we hear their teaching, then we have every responsibility to point that out. But not their motives. Because we don't know what their motives are. So Paul says, look at what he says in verse 18. What then? What's the conclusion? What do you think, Paul? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I, what? I rejoice. I rejoice. Then I rejoice. I rejoice that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, with someone who's a true preacher of Christ, is preaching Christ. And I'll let the Lord figure out all of the rest in the days to come. Right? Implication. He's not saying the motives are irrelevant, just that he can't determine them. They are relevant, but they are relevant to the right person, and that is the person of Jesus. So, implication for us, we've got enough baggage ourselves in the motive direction that we should assume the best. And unless we see in their lives or in their teaching something askew, then believe about your brothers and sisters in Christ, that they're living and communicating the true Christ with good motives. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for instruction like this. So grateful because for us, we seem to be wasting time trying to assess the motives of those around us when our motives are going unchecked. They're not responsible for us in the motives of our hearts and we're not responsible for them. We entrust our motives to you and we entrust their motives to you. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us as the true communicators of Christ and a true communicator of the gospel of Christ. And we will allow the rest of our time on this earth to be an examination of our own motives because we do not even most of the time know ourselves. We entrust ourselves to you. Allow us to be speaking and living the gospel as of first importance. In Jesus' name, amen.